let's, uh, let's do a, a quick review of where we are in the story of Abraham. Um, sometimes if you watch a favorite show at, and it's a series, at the beginning of that show they'll do a recap and you can tap the little skip the recap link and, uh, and tonight I feel like it might be helpful to actually kind of recap where we are in the story. So this guy Abraham, he grows up in this place where they worship this goddess called Nana or Nana. You got to be careful how you say that because some of our grandmamas go by a very similar word, you know. Um, and so this, this moon goddess, her name is Nana, and these people are descendants of, uh, of, of Noah's sons after the flood, one particular son. They settle in this place in, in, in what's known as Mesopotamia, and they begin to worship these pagan deities and, and specifically worship this, this, um, this goddess. And I've thought about this ever since. I don't know if you remember when we went through and we kind of got introduced to him, but I've thought about this, and I think Abram is 75 years old when we meet him, 75 years old. So what were his first 75 years like? We know they were pretty prominent family. His, his people were pretty prominent. But I, my imagination, some of you will appreciate this, and some of you maybe you don't think this way, but I know some of you probably do. My imagination goes to like a random Thursday in the life of 16-year-old Abram. Or, you know, grocery store day, you know, market day. I mean, they raise most of their food, but, you know, a, t a day in the market when he's a teenager, or when he's in his 20s, or like his wedding day to Sarah and all the, you know, dreams of how many kids they're going to have and all, you know, all that goes into that. Or what about like, uh, I was thinking, you know, we, we went through the way they worshiped the moon goddess and they did, th there's evidence of human sacrifice. So wonder like a, a 12 or 14 year old Abram being there at, at, at the moon festival and seeing the, the, these teenage girls being brought in or, you know, like ornamentally dressed to, to go into this sacrifice to this moon god. It's going to kill these teenage girls. And then like, he's a 12-year-old dude. That's part of his life. Think that would mess you up? Think that would twist you up? Think that would mess your thinking up? And a lot of us can relate to growing up and kind of having certain uh, things that you think, like the way you process information, the way you might view marriage or sexuality or relationships might be informed by a, a, a messed up upbringing, you know? It could be. It could be something like that. But, but this guy, Abram, is such a complex character because when we meet him, he's 75 years old. That's his background. And then he thrived and flourished in that world. I mean, he's super successful. And then God comes and snatches him out of that world, makes a covenant with him, you know, gives him promises. And then, you know, we saw how he ratified and sealed those promises in the blood of these animals. And so um, last week we get to this point where Abram um, takes matters into his own hands because the, God had made a promise to him. This guy's in his 70s, 80s, never had a kid. And God's like, hey, I'm going to give you all a kid. You're going to have a kid. And he's like, oh, okay, all right, well, I'm going to believe you. I think, I think I can believe you. And God gives him, you know, credits him righteousness for his belief. And then time passes. They don't have a kid. Abram does what we do. He, he, he's going to bail God out of the situation, you know. You ever do that? You're like, I need to rescue God. He clearly doesn't know what he's doing. So Abram decides he's going to rescue God. And so he, 
he and his wife decide to have um, this child through uh, a surrogate, which was one of the slaves that, that they possessed. And so we saw that story last week that that girl's name was Hagar and then have this son. And we know that that was a major mess up. Like God's got a plan for Abram and Sarah to have a child. They take it into their own hands, adultery, borderline rape, you know, like what, what's going on there is disturbing. And then chapter 16 ends with some promise but where we pick the story up tonight, when we started reading in chapter 17, verse 1, how much time lapses? 13 years. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. The bulk of this sermon, by the way, is going to be in the first few verses, and then we're just going to kind of fly over the, the, the majority of the chapter. What were those 13 years like where they have made a terrible mistake and then they don't hear from God for 13 years? I don't hear anything from God. I think, man, it must have been, there must have been days and weeks and months where the silence is almost like deafening. God's not speaking to them anymore. And I think they had to have, and some of us have probably been here, they probably had to start wrestling with some doubt over whether they had disqualified themselves from the promises of God. We, we messed up. God made these promises to us, but we've messed up, and now God's going to use somebody else. You think that might have been a thing? I think that could be a thing. I think it could be a thing that some of us deal with. Like, man, I've messed up. God, you know, I know God saved me. I talk to people sometimes. I got saved when I was 16 or 20 or 24, but I wrecked my marriage and got this addiction or, I, you know, whatever. You start to name all the things that disqualify you. But if we're not careful, we forget we were never qualified in the first place. Like, Abram's not going to be used by God because of Abram's abilities or righteousness, right? That's the gospels that God takes people who aren't worthy, people who have made mistakes, people who are broken and messed up, and God brings them to a place where he then uses them. And so time goes by, 13 years, okay, think of this, 13 years of silence, 13 years. What that 13 years look like? I'll tell you what it looked like, milking goats, washing dishes, paying bills, try to contextualize it. You know, for us, seasons of silence, car repairs, trying to not get behind on bills, some broken relationships here and there, like just the, the nature of life. I, I want to read, uh, there's a, um, one of the commentaries that we're using is from a guy named Dale Ralph Davis. I really like this guy. He's actually pretty comical. He says, think what went into those years between 1616 and 17.1. Uh, not much divine razzle-dazzle, apparently. God wasn't breaking into Abraham and Sarah's lives with sensational spurts of drama. I suppose they had clan gatherings and parties, but most of the time was spent over things like getting goat's milk for morning cereal, doing veterinary work, brushing teeth, getting over the flu or the plague that went through our church this past week. Uh, some of you have survived. Settling disputes over water rights, uh, great swaths of covenant life are like that. It consists of grocery stores and oil changes, of taking inventory and standing at copy machines, of getting allergy shop, shots and going for music lessons and pulling casseroles out of the oven, which springs the question, can you stand the ordinariness of the Christian life? That's a good, that's a good thought. Because most, like most of your Christian life is just going to be ordinary. You know, most of our Christian life is not like 
super exciting and like life is just a most of life is defined as like just one step one foot in front of the other right just grinding it out just grinding it out doing some study this week I'm, I'm real fascinated right now with I'm gonna I'm not picking on anybody but I'm gonna share some uh some some thoughts and insights the current generation of young adults that are like in college and, um, and, and kind of moving into adulthood uh, is referred to by a couple of things. One is Gen Z and one is iGen. iGen means the internet generation. This is the first generation, older folks, this is the first generation, so my older kids, their generation, first generation of people who have never known life without the internet. Never known life without the internet. There's not a time in their life, like, like, Life as they know it has always involved like the fast paced, fat, like, let me tell you what they don't, they don't know anything about. ABC after school specials, Saturday morning cartoons with toy, the only time of the week they do toy uh, commercials, yeah, or, or sugar cereal commercials, you know. They don't know what it's like to watch an episode of something and then have to wait an entire week and make sure that your schedule is ordered around that one hour that's going to contain 23 minutes of commercial messages. So it's 40 minutes of programming. And you got to wait the whole, and if, and if at the end of the episode, which they would do this about once a season, it would say to be continued, dot, dot, dot. And you're just like, oh my goodness. Oh my, are the Duke boys really going to get captured by Roscoe P. Coltrane this time? Like, are they going to get over the county line with the moonshine? You know, like, like is B.A. Baracus really, really not going to come back from actually getting beat up this one time? You know, like, you go through, and, and, and like, life up until the internet was, let's be honest, was a lot slower pace, wasn't it? Things were just slow. But now information has created a world where, there's like this sustained energy that, is, that has been accelerated, listen, by the uptick of social media. And I'm telling you, somebody that's been 30 years almost in student ministry, it is devastating the psychological well-being of an entire generation. People don't know what to do if they don't have a, an uptick in expressions of acceptance like, comment, subscribe. Like, comment, subscribe. Did you, did you see what I posted? No. Like, what about the ordinariness of life? Where you get up in the morning, you brush your teeth, you put on your shoes, you do your 10-hour work day, and you just go through life. Because the reality is, regardless of how much information is at, at our constant disposal, boredom is a good thing, y'all. Boredom is a good thing. This week, me and Hank were sitting, uh, and Jill was out there for a little while, and then Jill went in, and, and I watched the Parker kids, Hank's, Hank's boys, the Regal kids, and the Holloway kids swim in the pond, jump on a trampoline, go to the top of the mountain and back. It was about a two-hour. They, they conquered the Russian army somewhere up on that mountain. Okay, like they're playing make-believe. Like they're up and down. And I thought, you know, I thought about a, um, a study I, I read recently about this generation is growing up. That it, it started off as helicopter parenting, and it's turned into bulldozer parenting, where we're obsessed with safety in the physical realm and completely unguarded 
in the spiritual and mental realm. And it's creating an inability to be bored and to be creative and to just trust in the Lord and his provision for your life without constantly needing some sort of affirmation or or without constantly having to be cheered up because I'm just sad all the time. We live in a sad society, man. People are just sad. I was, when I, when I was a kid, I was thinking about this the other day. I'm pretty sure I was, I was beaten beyond what was legal on a regular basis. And I have nothing but gratitude towards my dad and total understanding of why he did what he did. Like, if, like when I think about me, like, yeah, he didn't have a choice. <laughs> he had to win that war. <laughs> He's like, I will beat you down. I will win. And you will be in pain, but I will, you know. And, but I think about, like, growing up, a lot of us in this room, poor, bored, and happy. Because the, the value system that's created in boredom for the believer is relationship, experience, satisfaction that comes from grinding it out at work and, and putting in a good day and at the end of the day being happy and satisfied with what you've done. There's a lot we can learn from those seasons of silence. And if we're honest with ourselves, most of us, the majority of our life, we're gonna, I'm going to give you six or seven Ps tonight. I'm going to alliterate. You know, I'm the one pastor at Red Oak that will alliterate. And it's kind of cheesy. I know it's hokey, but it's the way this brain works, okay? And it's this. We have to get to a place where we're happy and comfortable with nothing more than the presence of God in our life. God's present. He's just present. Listen to me, Red Oak. God is with you always. When you're sad, when you're freaked out, when you're discouraged, stop for a minute and think about the fact that the Lord is in that moment present with you. He's present with you. He ain't gone nowhere. He's gone nowhere. He's just, and he's unchanging in his presence. I can't help but wonder if when God shows up in chapter 17, verse 1, his presence, I wonder, was it shocking or is it just his, his vocalization that might have been shocking? Because maybe they had been grinding it out, just trusting in the presence of the Lord. But I know they're human, and we're human, and you're human, and I'm human. There had to have been some times where they were doubting. God's done with us. Hey, Abraham's 99 years old. You know, later in the story, he laughs when God's like, y'all going to have a kid. He's like, <laughs> knee replacements 25 years ago. <laughs> I have a kid? That's so great. I mean, I believe you. Um, <clears throat> you know, like feel the gritty reality of this dude's like situation the presence of God is there and and I'm so grateful I'm gonna tell you something that I think Abram and Sarah Sarah were learning is this God doesn't move at the speed that we typically want him to move but I'm going to give you one nugget right here that I think is really helpful for me speed is almost always the enemy of depth speed is almost always the enemy of depth in other words God tends to move slowly because he's conforming us to the image of Jesus. He's teaching us along the way. He's taking us through a process. And a lot of times we want things to happen more quickly. We want it right now, right now, right now. And speed tends to create shallow experiences. Speed is often the enemy of depth. God doesn't need us. And in his silence, God has not been confused. He didn't get sidetracked or trying to figure out what to do next or God wasn't lost or kind of at wit's end. He knew what was going on. 
Let me give you some observations during seasons of silence when we recognize the presence of God. One thing to, to know is this. God remains the same. He's unchanging. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The world is no more or no less broken at any point in history, but sometimes we feel the effects differently based on the season that we're in. Think of this in terms of like what it was like after 9-11, and people tend to be more focused in a time like that on who God is. Distractions tend to increase during the slower, quieter season. Some people thrive better in the quiet times, but most of us have to work harder at that. Most of us need a dumpster fire. <laughs> we need drama. We need just, just, just something in our lives that's pulling at us and tearing at us. We need difficulty to drive us to a place where we focus on Jesus because it's harder to do it when things are quiet and calm and there's no distractions. Calmness and boredom actually tend to cultivate laziness and unproductive comfort. But the reality is, it's good to be bored when we recognize and acknowledge the presence of God. But when God makes a promise, he doesn't go back on it. When he sets a covenant, he doesn't go back on that. So the next thing that happens after Abram is, is like if God reveals his presence to him. In verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I'm the, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. This is really pretty awesome because what he does is he reveals his power. So you've got the presence of God, and now Abram is reminded of the power of God. What does he call himself right there? He calls himself God Almighty, which we would say God the Mighty which is the, the Hebrew name for God there is El Shaddai. Remember that? The great 80s Amy Grant song. It's awesome. It's good. It's really good. And she actually talks about Hagar in that song. God Almighty. God is saying to him, okay, I'm here. 13 years of silence. I'm here. And I'm still the one who has the power to do whatever I please to do, whatever I've said I would. We, he's, like, he's reminding Abram of his power. He's reminding him that he is the God who has the power to fulfill his promises. These are the first words that God has spoken after 13 years of silence. The first words that God speaks are the words that he speaks to remind Abram of his power. God is a God of power, and that power has not changed. He's still done, he still has done and continued to do what God does. He upholds the creation, and he moves in the hearts and lives and affairs of people. He can do what no one else can do, and in fact, nothing is too difficult for God because he's God El Shaddai, God Almighty. Jeremiah 32 says that the, nothing is too difficult for the Lord. He says, ah, great Lord, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power. Nothing is too difficult for you. Nothing's too difficult for God to do. So he's coming back into the conversation with Abram and he would remind him of his power in verse one. And then he would call Abram to a life of purity. He says, I'm God almighty. So this is who I am. Now walk before me and be blameless. And this idea of purity demanded. So we see presence, we see power, we see purity. And what he's doing is like he's, he's outline, outlining the Christian life. He's saying, walk with me, walk before me, walk in my truth, and be blameless. And this, this idea of being blameless is not like, hey, man, go be perfect and don't make mistakes. He's saying, be wholeheartedly, completely devoted to me. 
That's what he's saying. Be totally surrendered to me. That's the call of God for, for all of us. That's the call of God on our lives is, hey, surrender to me. Be totally devoted, completely surrendered in devotion, in wholehearted devotion, in wholehearted loyalty. God is calling Abram to trust, obey, surrender, and follow him. It's unqualified, unreserved surrender because of who God is and what God has done. He's demanding purity, but that purity is not just like, hey, follow the rules or, hey, don't don't do this and don't do that. And it's not like a legalistic system. It's about devotion to the Lord. For us, our Christian life should not be like, like defined and primarily marked by our, like our ability to be religious. Like we go to church and I follow the rules and I don't, you know, what's the old saying? Don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do. You know, like, what, like here's my list of vices. I don't do any of that, so I'm a good Christian. Like, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, were raised, like, well, that, was kind of, that was kind of the thing. Like, here's the rules. Here's what good, for me, it was here's what Baptists do. Baptists tuck their shirt in. Baptists have short haircuts, you know, like, oh, I thought that was Mormons. No, they were due to the tie on the bike. That's different. You know, like, okay, it's so like we, you come up with these rule systems, and what he's saying is not, hey, here's what I want you to do. Be blameless by following the law, because Paul will write in, in the first part of Romans that the law wasn't even in place yet. He's saying, I just want you to be devoted. You know what God wants from Abram is what he wants from us? Devotion. Undistracted, unqualified surrender to follow him holy and fully devoted. Watch what Abram does in verse two, in verse three rather, he fell on his face. So the next thing we see is praise. The response of Abram is praise. He begins to praise the Lord. He falls on his face before the Lord. This is a life of obedient worship. And this praise is not based on a feeling. I think this is important that Tuck and I had, and Laylee was there, we had a conversation sitting around the fire. I think it was last night, maybe not before. Tuck's trying to find a church to go to. He's like, Went to this one super charismatic church, you know, doing the charismatic shuffle. Y'all know that one? Y'all see that one? No? Okay, you ain't been to that church. I've been to that church. So like, like, boom, music starts. Like, that's what happens. It's crazy to see. It's crazy to see. It's like, boom. As soon as it starts, like, so we're having this conversation. He's like, man, I went to this church, and as soon as the, like, people are just talking and being crazy, acting crazy, guys up there talking, as soon as the music starts, everybody starts worshiping. And the music stops, and the preacher starts talking, and everybody gets distracted. They're fooling around on their phones. And I think there's this cultural, and maybe this is nuanced, but I think there's this cultural idea that, that we got to confront sometimes where we think of worship as music and musical experience. We think of worship as expressions of devotion to God when the music's playing. Now, that's, that it is part of it. The music here, I love music here. I love the way we sing. I love the way this church worships. I feel like it's awesome because I feel this balance of, man, this is sincere, it's real, but it's not, you know what I'm saying? Like, like it's not, you remember those, those Motown bands where it's like one dude's over here singing and these other four guys are going, like that, right? So it's not like, that's not like good worship. Just because you're moving the right way or raising your hand on cue or saying the little filler lines that Tomlin says when he sings the song, you know what I'm saying? Like, worship to the Lord is, boom, God says, I want you to be blameless. I want you to be devoted to me. And Abram says, okay, you got it. And he falls flat on his face in a posture of whatever you say next, I'm going to do. 
Whatever you say, it doesn't matter if the music plays or not. Whatever you say next, I'm going to do. That's worship. That's praise. Abram shows us what praise looks like, because let's be honest, Abram's a goof up, man. Follow his life and the trajectories of the highs and lows and ups and downs. We can learn from him because he messes up so much. I think that it's important when we think of, of, of praise and worship that what drives our worship is not a feeling, but theological truth. Because I want to tell you something. All theological truth is profound. When God shows up after 13 years of silence and says, I'm El Shaddai. Literally, you think of the loudest, scariest, most intense, most obnoxious thunderstorm you've ever heard. I want you to imagine lightning cracking, thunder shaking so much you can feel it in your body cavity. And that's not as intense as when God showed up that day after 13 years of quiet and went, I'm still as powerful as I was 13 years ago to the day the last time I talked to you. And that reality is what drives Abram's worship. Worship is driven by theological truth, not by emotional experience. That's important. Does it create emotional experience? Absolutely. Have you ever wept in response? Sure. Have you ever been overwhelmed with joy? Sure. Have you ever been caved in under conviction? Of course. But the emotion is not what you stir up to drive that. The theological profundity, the truth that's being declared to Abram in that moment drives this guy who's been walking through board meetings with the 318 militia, counting noses on goats, trying to figure out if they got enough grain to get them through the winter. All of a sudden, boom, everything stops and he's on his face before God saying, whatever you say next, that's what I'm going to do. And y'all, that's worship. Response to theological truth. And here's what I think is so helpful for me when we get to verse four. He starts to, God starts to lay out the promises of the covenant and the promises that he's already made. But he, in the middle of that, what he does is he changes Abram's name. He changes Abram's name. Think about this. Abram's name means exalted father. You see that in the footnote? James Boyce, he, he, I really love the way he illustrates this because he's like, imagine Abram going to town for the goat sale, right? They go to town, they roll into town, and people are like, oh, here comes the guy that's got the big encampment out there on, you know, on, on this down to the south of town, whatever. And he comes rolling in, and guys are like, hey, man, what's your name? And he's introducing himself. Abram, oh, man, your name is Exalted Father. That's awesome. How many children do you have? None. None. I got zero. Well, I got one. But it's not a son of promise. It's a son of my own failure to be the man that God called me to be. The only thing he's got to show for his name is his own mistakes. The only thing he's got to identify and associate himself with when it comes to his name is his own mismanagement of God's promises. Can you relate to that? So God shows up and he's like, I'm changing your name. Thank you. 99 years, I've been, you, God, you cannot imagine the last 13 years how awkward the conversations have been. 
What are you going to call me? How about Ray? I've always thought Ray was a good name. Let's do something with one syllable. Let's walk it back. Abram. It's just, it's not long. It's not short. It's in that weird in-between. Let's walk it back. How about just, let's cut it to Abe. Could we do Abe? That's trendy. No, I'm going to change your name. I'm going to add to it. Abram's going to become Abraham instead of exalted father. Your name is now father of a multitude. Okay. I'm just picturing him walking into the tent. Families gathering. You know, got Sarah's in there. Extended family. The most loyal of his servants. All right, guys, changing my name. We knew this was coming, man. We knew you're probably sick of having, having to explain that to people. Changing my name. Actually, actually, the Lord spoke to me and told me he's changing my name. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, good. Yeah, but still, those... <laughs> Those exalted father conversations. We wondered, we wondered, it took you till you were 99 to get to figure this out. Yeah, here's what I'm changing my name to multitude of nations. The promises of God oftentimes just don't even make sense. They don't even make sense. But we need to hang on to them. We need to hang on to them. Because God is the God of promises, and the rest of the chapter, 13 times he uses the word covenant. 13 times. So what do we do with the promises of God? Because at this point, God's given Abram this promise, and he's saying, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a child. In about a year, your wife's going to have a kid. Hold on to this promise. Let me tell you, the promises of God, here's the way I want to illustrate the promises of God, the way this needs to work. The promises of God, I want you to imagine someone who has a coin collection or, or something that I think is really cool, an arrowhead collection. We first started the camp, found pretty quick five or six arrowheads. And I like to take those arrowheads out and I like to just kind of roll those over in my hand. I like to finger the tip and feel the edge and look at the craftsmanship. Have you ever seen one? We live in Cherokee. This is, this is the heartland of the Cherokee Nation. And I'll look at that and I'll look at the craftsmanship and the balance and I think, at some point in history, somebody sat down on a stump and cut this out of some, some flint. And then they, they tethered it to a shaft, and then they used it as a projectile. And I'm finding it where they, they shot a rabbit, they shot a deer, they missed one and couldn't find it. I don't know. I'm finding this thing. There's a story to this that precedes me. There's history to this. There's purpose in this that I'm only looking at it and getting what's right in front of me. But when I, when I roll it over in my hands, it triggers memories that I don't even have. Memories of the imagination, but they're rooted in truth. The promises of God sometimes are like that. I mull over these promises that Yahweh made in generations past. What was God doing with Israel? What was God doing with Daniel? What was God doing with Peter? What was Jesus doing at the cross? What was Jesus doing by the Sea of Galilee? What, what am I receiving as a child of God? what Peter calls great and precious promises that I need to take out and examine. And I wonder in those seasons of silence how much healthier it would be for us if we would remind ourselves of the promises of God. Because Paul writes to the Romans, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1 writes, his great and precious promises are part of the inheritance that he gives to us. In verses 9 through 22, 
God lays out his plan, so we come to the plan of God. And that plan, I'll let you read that. We're not going to work through that whole thing. It's God's promise that, hey, I'm going to bring the child through Sarah. The son of promise is going to be, is going to be through Sarah. And he separates and distinguishes Isaac from Ishmael. He's like, this is the son of promise, and this is the son of, of Hagar, and they're going to be different. And he begins to actually prophesy. In fact, in verse 6, he said, kings shall come from you. And in verses 9 through 22, he lays out what would be a miracle, the miracle of childbirth. In fact, again, when he says it to Abram, he's like, hey, you're going to have a kid. And your daughter's, I mean, your uh, wife's going to have a kid. Your son's going to be born in about a year. Uh, the first time we hear Abram talk is in verse 17, which is another cool little thought that this story is about God, not about Abram. He doesn't even speak up until verse 17. He fell on his face and laughed and said, shall a child be born to a man 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90, bear a child? It's a miracle is what it is. And the miracle of God expressed to Abram prompts a command that Abram will then obey. Abram obeys when God gives him the instruction of circumcision. Why? Because we saw, based on the theology of who God is, Abraham obeys Yahweh. He obeys El Shaddai. He obeys the Lord because he trusts him and because he's devoted to him. If we trust God and we're devoted to his word, we're devoted to Christ, here's, here's the reality. There are no seasons of silence for us because God's word is living and active. We, we live in such a, a, a benefited time in history because we have the word of God. We have the abiding presence of the Lord. We have the miracle of the virgin birth. We have the miracle of the resurrection. We have the miracle of the humanity of the God-man, Jesus. And we rest all of our faith on that. And then God commands Abram. And because of Abram's surrender and trust in who God is, he obeys. The, uh, the command is circumcision, which in the modern church, in the, or not the modern church, I don't want to say that, but in the, under the covenant of grace, after the resurrection of Jesus, what that's been replaced with, and there's debate over exactly how this works, but the bottom line is for us, the surrender as a marked sign of the child of God is that we follow the Lord in believer's baptism. We're baptized. We identify with Christ in his death. The miracle was resurrection, the command is take part in that resurrection. The baptismal waters are the illustrative platform. When we're buried with Christ in those baptismal waters, we're raised to walk in newness of life, which is why we don't, we don't sprinkle. Well, we're not Baptists. Let me, okay, my time's up. I'm at 34, 45. 35 minutes is the sermon time, all right? So we're done with the sermon, but now, all right, hang on. Baptizo, baptizo is the Greek word. It means to immerse or submerge. The problem was, and we're stepping into like a little history lesson, all right? The problem was when the King James, when the, when the English translations were being translated, by then the, the universal church that was predominantly Roman Catholic had, had instituted infant sprinkling. And so they didn't translate the word because to translate it purely would have been now be immersed with Christ in his, in his death. So they just left it baptized. Baptized. And so then you just got to like interpret it yourself. It's to, it's to be buried with Christ. The sign of circumcision 
was a symbolic act that had a command attached to a promise. Baptism is a symbolic act that rests on a fulfilled promise. If God was true to Abraham and all of his covenant promises, you better believe that the, the covenant that was ratified in the blood of animals is not, is not as binding as the covenant that's ratified in the blood of Jesus. And we would say it is as binding because it's binding based on the character of God, but the fact that you and I have been sealed in the blood of Jesus. This is why the writer of Hebrews uses the word better. This is better. So Abraham obeys. Because why? Because he is in full surrender. The conclusion is two verses, seven and eight, are the main idea of the text. And I want to give you these, these, these two ideas, these two things that we need to understand as we go out of here with Blair's challenge to act on the hearing of the word of God. The first one is this, God is for Abraham and God is for us. God loves us and he gives us his goodness and even in difficult times and seasons, we can trust that. God loves you. Paul wrote to the Romans, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And Peter writes, the great and precious promises that we see and receive through the power of God in our lives reveal that God is for us. God is for you this week. And the second thing that we can take away is that God has an inheritance for Abraham that he didn't get to fully see in this life, but we've been given a great and precious inheritance and an eternal future and an eternal hope that when we studied through 1 Peter last year, we saw is kept, which means guarded, protected in heaven for us. The promises of God are irrevocable and they're protected, they're guarded, they're kept for us. So even in the seasons of silence, let's hold on to the promises. Let's mull them over in our hands. They preceded us in one sense because God is eternal. And they, they, they need to be constantly put in front of us. God loves me. God is for me. God has a plan. God has a purpose. God has given me commands and instruction. But sometimes we're going to move slowly. And there may be seasons where it's the word of God and the presence of God that I'm relying on. And it's one foot in front of the other that's going to define the Christian life. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And I do thank you for the promises that are irrevocable because they're sealed in the blood of Jesus, grounded in the truth of your word. God, we are um, unable in our own ability or strength or r religiosity to be able to earn your favor or win the day. God, I, there might be somebody here tonight that's, that's maybe in that mindset that Sarah and Abram might have been in when they're thinking back to their failure and they haven't heard from you in a while and they're wrestling with their own failure. God, I pray that you would show them that through repentance and restored fellowship with you, they can be reconciled to their God, to their Savior and live in freedom and victory but ultimately that your covenant to us doesn't rest on our ability to be perfect. It rests on the reality that you are perfect. And as the perfect lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice, Jesus has laid down his life so that in his blood, we might be cleansed and purified and washed so that we could have fellowship with the father. Help us to learn from Abraham and Sarah and to to live in obedience and worship as they did based on the reality of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.